We are uh, in the midst of a series on the book of Hebrews, and uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. You may recall, recall the point of the book is that Jesus is better, and thus He is worth following and sticking with and worshiping and serving, no matter what the pressures may be externally, such as persecution, or internally, such as temptation. So that's the point of the book, and the author has been working through these various arguments until he finally uh, gets to our text, and the argument here is that Jesus brings a better covenant, a better agreement between us and God, and that's what we're going to be talking about today as we've already been singing and praying along those lines. So let me read Hebrews chapter 8, which is on page 1005 in the Pew Bible, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of ours and take it home, read it at home. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a better ministry, a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I, look, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what has become obsolete and growing old is, already, is ready to vanish away. This is God's Word. Now what I'd like to do today is I'd like to go through the passage pretty quickly and just point out the flow of the argument, and then uh, I will give you the outline for the sermon to see how we can apply it to our lives today. Okay, so verse 1, after looking at the Melchizedekian priesthood in the previous chapter, so we talked about it last week, the author now tells us what the point is. This is 
always very helpful when the author stops and says, okay, I've been talking for a long time. This is my point. So pay attention. This is, this is what I mean. And what is the point? The point is that we have this kind of high priest. So all that he's been talking about, this new priest after the order of Melchizedek, now he says the point is that we have one like that. That's Jesus. This high priest Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven in position of ultimate authority as the king priest over us. Now in verses 2 through 4, his ministry is described And Jesus' ministry does not take place in the earthly tabernacle, so the tent that Moses had set up that became eventually the temple in Jerusalem. That's not where Jesus ministers. He ministers in the heavenly tent, in the heavenly sanctuary set up by God himself. That's where his sacrifice is offered. It's offered directly to God in his presence. In fact, if Jesus were to minister on earth in the earthly temple, he would not be allowed to do that because he doesn't qualify by law to be a Levitical priest. He's not after the order of Aaron. He's not in that family. But in heaven, he is qualified to minister on our behalf. In verse 5, we are told that the tabernacle, the old tabernacle, is a copy or a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. So the heavenly sanctuary is the real thing. It's the true tent after which Moses' tabernacle was patterned. We'll be talking a lot more about it next Sunday when we talk about the new sanctuary that Jesus is ministering in. And then as we go on, Jesus' priestly ministry is described as much better than the ministry of the Levitical priests because his ministry is based on a better covenant, which is based in better promises. So the contrast here is that the old priests were ministering under the old covenant. So this is the law of Moses, which basically goes like this, fulfill these commitments, these conditions, and you will receive a blessing. This is how you relate to God. You do these things, you observe these commandments, these ordinances, and this is how you relate to God. But Jesus brings a new covenant, a different kind of agreement with God that is based on grace. This is what we call the gospel. Remember that the original readers of Hebrews were struggling with this idea. They were thinking, should we go back to the old covenant? Should we go back to the old priesthood, to the old temple, the old sanctuary, the old way of doing things? Because it was clear what you had to do. You could just go and offer a sacrifice. You can go and talk to a priest. And things were majestic and spectacular at the temple. And the author is arguing, don't go back to the old covenant because the new covenant has come in Jesus. And it is a better covenant. And then in verses 8 through 12 is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, which is what we use for our call to worship, where the new covenant is promised. In verses 8 and 10, we learn that the fault with the old covenant is really not with the covenant itself, but with the people who could not keep it. So the Lord promises to make a new covenant based on better promises that allow us to stay in agreement with God even when we fail. And so verses 10 through 12 lay out these better promises. There are three. God's laws will be written in the people's minds and hearts, so they'll be internalized. Secondly, everyone in the new covenant will personally know God. And thirdly, their sins will be forgiven completely and forever. And verse 13 is the conclusion. The new covenant in Christ has replaced the old covenant. They do not coexist. The old is gone. Now the new is here. So that's our argument. Jesus is here. He's the new high priest. He brings a new covenant that's built on better promises. So how do we 
apply it to our lives. I'd like to use this outline for us this morning. One high priest, two covenants, three promises, and four points of application. One high priest, two covenants, three promises, and four points of application. And some of you are calculating in your mind, how many points is that? Because it seems to increase with every point. You seem to add an extra point to the next point. I want to assure you that the number of points has nothing to do with the length of the sermon, so please don't, don't worry about that. Okay, one high priest. Our passage begins with the main point, right, like we, we saw just a few minutes ago. The main point is that Jesus is this new high priest. And because he is our new high priest, all sorts of implications follow. In fact, the rest of the book of Hebrews is really working out these implications. So, for example, chapter 9 is all about the new sanctuary. Chapter 10 is all about the new sacrifice. But all of that is dependent on the new high priest, Jesus. One commentator says, as the Aaronic priesthood, so after the order of Aaron, gives place to the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, so the old covenant gives place to the new. The earthly sanctuary gives place to the heavenly. The sacrifices which were but temporary tokens give place to one which is effective and of eternal validity. Now, all of that is coming from and through the priesthood of Christ. In other words, if we don't get the main point that it, all of that comes through Jesus, it doesn't matter what we get through all these implications and consequences of that one main point. It's easy for some of us as readers of Hebrews to get bogged down in these complex analogies and quotations and typology and illustrations and all these things. It's, it's a complex book. And yet, the point is very clear. All of these blessings, all of these connections, all of these types, they're all coming through one person. Jesus Christ. We have Jesus, our high priest. Through him, we have forgiveness. Through him, we have full access to God. Through him, we have the final revelation of God. Through him, all of God's promises are fulfilled, and so on. But all of that comes through Jesus and because of what he has done for us. So if you're struggling with the complexity of the book, I'm reducing it to the very simplicity of this main point that is through Christ. Everything is through Christ. He's better. And so all these things come through him. That's one high priest. Second point, two covenants. Now let me, I'll take an aside here for a little bit. If you've been around church for a while, and if you've been around, especially if you've been through various pastors, as some of you have been, I'm, I'm one in the series of pastors here at, at Chatham, I'm sure every pastor comes in and he brings a, a different take on how the new covenant relates to the Old Covenant. And you can see theological trends. You can see theological schools. It's a real question. Many of us are wrestling with that. How does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? How does the Old Covenant of the law relate to the New Covenant of grace? How do we put them together? And so some people say, well, the Old Covenant is for the old people. This is for the, for, for the Jews, for Israel. That's for them, not the old as, as an age. Some of you are thinking, ah, that's for me, that's great. No, it's not for you. It's for, it's for some people say it's, it's for, for the people of Israel. It was given to them for a specific time, and now the time has passed, and it's irrelevant to us. We're in the new age. We're the church. It doesn't matter what happened in the past in Israel. 
And so the Old Testament becomes irrelevant, and, and people who believe that rarely read or preach on the Old Testament. Now, others say, no, 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 this is for us just as much as it was for Israel. So we need to go back to the Old Testament, and in fact, let's apply everything we see in the Old Testament directly and immediately as it's speaking to us. This is where you get churches that switch their day of worship to Saturday. They start obeying the dietary laws, and they're kind of thinking it would be kind of cool to do sacrifices if we could, you know. Now, those are two very different approaches, and of course, I'm giving you the extremes of that. But the question is relevant. How do we read the Old Testament in a way that's faithful to the rest of the book, in the way that is applicable and valuable to us today, and yet does not ignore the nuances of the Old Covenant? What is the relationship between the Old and the New? So let me make three observations from this text, and then I hope to give you an illustration, an analogy that I think, I hope, I think will be helpful to us. Okay, so that's another pastor trying to answer that same question to you, okay? So maybe, maybe it'll be helpful. So three, illustra- three observations from our text. Number one, the two covenants are successive and not concurrent. They're successive as in one comes after the other. So the old covenant comes first. In fact, our author calls it the first covenant and then the second covenant. There's the old covenant and then there's the new covenant. The idea is that they don't coexist. It's not like we are at the same time enrolled in the first covenant and the second covenant. That's not true. And so one replaces the other. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. Our verse 13 tells us that, that it's becoming obsolete and growing old and is ready to vanish away. The author doesn't want them to go back to the old covenant because it's, it's gone. Something else has come and replaced it. That's my first observation. Second, the new covenant is not God's reaction to the unexpected failure of the old covenant. In other words, it's not that God said, I'm going to do things this way, so we're going to institute a law, I'm going to speak to Moses on Mount Sinai, I'm going to give you these commandments, these regulations, these rules, you do it, and then we'll be fine, and then God is surprised that we didn't do it, that we couldn't fulfill that covenant. No, from very early on in Scripture, a new covenant is promised. Even in the midst of giving the old covenant, there is a lot of grace. And God is continuing to reiterate, is saying, saying to us, I will do something even better than this. So, for example, in Deuteronomy, there is a promise about a circumcised heart. We'll look at it in a, in a few minutes. That's in the midst of the law. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, this is our passage, our quote here. Now, that's given well before Jesus came. And yet it's given in in connection with the Old Covenant. It's saying, okay, the Old Covenant is passing away. The New Covenant is coming, and this is how I'm going to do it. God has always wanted to do the New Covenant. The Old Covenant happened first, but God has always had in His mind that a New Covenant will come. It was expected that we would fail the Old Covenant, and so we would need the New One. And thirdly, my third observation, the Old Covenant prepared God's people for the new. This is the reason, I think this is the primary reason why God gave the law to Moses, is to prepare the people for Christ. The book of Hebrews is the most compelling case for this argument, because you cannot, you cannot understand this book unless you've read the Old Testament. There's no way to understand this book unless you know the Old Testament. 
All these categories of priesthood, sanctuary, sacrifice, they make no sense unless you have the stories and the regulations from the Old Testament. So when you get to the New Testament, and our author here says, now you have such a high priest, you're thinking, oh, I know what a priest is. I know what a priest does. I know what a good priest does. And now that Christ has come, he fills all those categories with deeper and better meaning. So the Old Covenant is important, but it's important in a way that it prepares us for the New Covenant. So putting all these three observations together, we end up with a very high view of the Old Covenant. It is tremendously valuable to us as Christians. Friends, we should read the Old Testament. And since we are God's people, like Israel, the Old Testament is our story too. So when I read the Old Testament, and it's talking about Israel or Judah, that's talking about me. It's talking about us. Now, is everything exactly applied to us in the way that it was applied to Israel? No. There are distinctions. It's, it's nuanced. We have to be careful. But I am a person from God's people. And so God's promises are applicable to me as well. Now, we don't consider the law bad or the Old Testament irrelevant because it's part of one story that is also our story. However, we also end up with the view of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament through the lens of the New Covenant. We don't apply the Old Covenant commands directly but only as they are fulfilled in Christ. Here's one example. We still value the Sabbath. A Christian who reads the Old Testament has to take Sabbath requirements seriously. But we don't look at it through the lens of the law only. We look at it through the lens of the new covenant in which Jesus is our ultimate rest. Jesus who has fulfilled that commandment, and now we worship Jesus on Sunday and not on Saturday. Why? The lens of the new covenant. We're still obeying the Sabbath, but we're doing that in a different new covenant way. So this is the, the illustration. I, I was looking for it all week. I hope it works. No illustration is perfect, but I hope it works. I hope it helps you put these two covenants together in a way that, hopefully in one picture, that, that explains some of what I've been talking about. The old covenant is like an engagement while the new covenant is like a marriage. Marriage comes after the engagement, and in fact, it replaces that. You can't be engaged and married at the same time. Not to the same person, for sure. <laughs> engagement comes first, and then marriage fulfills it and replaces it. Engagement is inadequate in comparison to marriage, but engagement prepares you for marriage. So we can look at our engagement with fondness if your marriage is good. But if there's no marriage, if that engagement was broken off, it feels, because it is, like a failure. Now put it together in light of the covenants. The old covenant is like an engagement. Is it good? Yes. It prepares you for marriage. Marriage will fulfill these promises. 
It is helpful. It is meaningful. There are things that are happening that are very important during that time. And yet, it's incomplete. It's inadequate until you get to marriage. And when you get to marriage, you look back on the engagement. You look back on the old covenant and you say, this is good. This was important. This is valid for me. But I'm not engaged anymore. I'm not under the old covenant anymore. I'm under the new covenant. I'm married to God. And thus, I see the old covenant in light of my new relationship with God through Christ. As many women wear both of their engagement rings and wedding rings, I should use this hand. That's what you Americans do. It's the left hand. We do it on the right hand in Ukraine. But as many women wear the engagement ring and the wedding ring on the same finger, this is our relationship with God through the two covenants. The engagement ring is beautiful and it's important and reminds us of important things. But unless there's also a wedding ring there, it's incomplete. And if you had to pick, you'd pick the wedding ring, not the engagement. So this is the two covenants, and I'm hoping that that illustration helps us somehow to put it together. Okay, let's focus specifically on the new covenant and the three promises that are given to us here. And there are better promises than the old covenant promises. Number one, internal change. In the new covenant, we are promised an internal change. Verse 10, God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the Old Covenant, the law was given, but it was given on tablets of stone. Blessings were promised for those who kept it. Curses were promised for those who broke those laws. And all the people at Mount Sinai, when they heard Moses present the law, and that covenant was made, everybody said, we will obey the Lord. We will do what the Lord has commanded us, and we will reap the blessings. And yet, they didn't. They couldn't. The law remained an external requirement without the internal motivation. And thus, it didn't work, and it couldn't work. Let me give you another illustration that I I hope is helpful. I was going to talk about chocolate ice cream, but then I thought, I'll talk about quinoa. And you're thinking, why? Because I think quinoa really works better for this, because very few people like quinoa, and yet many people eat it. The Old Covenant is like quinoa. It's great for you. Do you know what quinoa is? If you don't know, it's it's a grain that now is everywhere. You you can't get a salad without quinoa anymore, um, or a burger. Uh, (laughs) It's an ancient grain um, that is supposedly very, very good for you. I know that. I believe that. I have no reason to to question that it's good for me, that it will nourish me, that it will give me vitamins and minerals in my body that I need to be healthy. And yet, when I go to Aldi and I shop, and I go to that aisle, that back aisle that has pasta and grains, and, and I get to quinoa, and I say, it's good for me. I should eat it. I should buy it so I can make it. And then I say, nah. <laughs> I don't want it. I don't, my heart does I understand that it's good. Now, please notice, I'm not questioning that it's good. I understand that I believe it. But my heart doesn't want it. I don't have a taste for it. 
There's nothing in me that says that craves quinoa. There's other things I crave, and you look at me and say, yeah, you do crave things. <laughs> but not quinoa. And so for me, I, I could force myself to eat it, but I will not like it. This is what's happening in the New Covenant. The Lord not only tells us this is good for you, and this will help you, and this will bless you, but He also says, I'm going to change your heart so you will want it. This is why the New Covenant is so much better than the Old Covenant, because God says, I know you don't want it. I know in your own sinful nature, you don't want me. You don't want my things that are important to me. You don't want to know me or serve me. So instead of just telling you, here is quinoa, it's good for you, eat it, I'm going to say, I'm going to change your heart, I'm going to change your mind, I'm going to give you a taste for what I want you to enjoy. This is an amazing promise. God doesn't just say, do it because I tell you to do it. He says, do it because you will want to do it. You will love doing it, you will enjoy doing it because I will change your heart. His law is promised to be written on our hearts. At the deepest, this is a biblical way of saying at the deepest level of who you are, you will want to obey me. You will want to love me. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that's the passage I referred to a couple minutes ago. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's a new covenant promise. He says, yes, I require external circumcision. People can do that. But I'm going to go far beyond that. I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to change your heart so you will want to love me and that your children will love me with all their hearts and souls and they and you can live. That's the promise. That's the new covenant promise. And that is what happens to us when we encounter Jesus, when we go into that, enter into that new covenant. There is a spiritual change that happens. The New Testament talks about a new birth. It talks about a spiritual transformation. It talks about a life of walking in step with the Spirit, bearing the Spirit's fruits and using the Spirit's gifts. This is an outside transformation that is at the same time very internal. Our hearts are changed. Our minds are changed. Now, things that didn't used to matter to me before I encountered Christ matter to me now. How can I explain that? I didn't used to like Hinoa. Now I like Hinoa. How, how did that happen? God changed something in me. There's internal spiritual transformation that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's inexplicable unless you read the Bible and the Bible describes it as, as something that happens to those who enter into the new covenant with God. That's the first promise. The second one is personal relationship with God. Verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. In the new covenant, every person will have a direct, personal experience of God. Every person will have a personal relationship with God. Now, we can still teach each other, as I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm helping us understand the Scriptures. 
That's not the kind of teaching he's talking about. But I am not telling you this is what God is like as if you don't know what God is like. If you're a part of the new covenant, you know God. You know God, regardless of what I say. Nobody needs to teach you about God's nature because you know him personally. I know him, not secondhand, based on someone's words. I know him. Every believer should be able to say that. In the new covenant, I don't just belong to a church that claims to know God, but I know him. I have a relationship with him. I know what he's like because he is my God. There's a great passage in John 20 when Thomas, who missed the first appearance of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and he was questioning whether it happened. And eight days later, so a week later, the disciples are gathered again, and Thomas is there. This is John 20, verse 26 and on. And then Jesus comes, and he stands among them, and he says, Peace be with you. Then he says to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus shows up. He says, This is the new relationship. I am here, right here. You can touch me. You can see my wounds. You can see that I'm real. And notice how Thomas responds. Thomas says, My Lord and my God. This is so important. Now, he belonged to the group that believed that Jesus rose again. But now, it is personal. He sees Jesus, and he says, My Lord and my God. He is my Lord and my God, and he is your Lord and your God. That's the new covenant. And the final third promise is complete forgiveness. Verse 12. God says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, it begins with this little word, for. For I will be merciful, and I will remember their sins no more. For signifies that the basis for the first two promises is God's forgiveness. In other words, God says, I will give you a new heart, and I will be your God because for since I am merciful towards your iniquities, and I will remember your sins no more. He had to remove our guilt before he could give us a new heart and establish a new relationship with us. There are two aspects of this forgiveness in our text. There's the legal aspect. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. There's the legal removal of guilt. And there's the relational aspect. I will remember their sins no more. Jerry Bridges in his, his excellent book, Transforming Grace, if you haven't read it, read it. It's just, just a great, helpful book. He talks, he uses this illustration of a student Uh, whose defiance towards the teacher produced legal consequences like getting expelled from school, but also relational consequences like the teacher's hostility towards him. And so when I was reading that illustration, it reminded me of my own experience in high school, surprisingly enough. This is what my my, uh, second daughter, Zoya, refers to as his troubled childhood. (laughs) Early in my high school career, I remember that, that I just cared nothing about my grades or my teachers. But then, in my second to last year, 
of high school, I realized that my grades actually will determine opportunities in life and potential educational <laughs> uh, doors that would be open for me. And so I changed. I just, I remember very clearly in the beginning of the year just thinking, I just got to do better. Otherwise, I'm not ever going to college. And so I started behaving better in the classroom, not outside the classroom, but in the classroom. <laughs> and I started studying harder. And so my official standing with the school administration changed because my grades were better. And so as far as the principal was concerned, I was a good student that year. But my teachers had a much harder time accepting this new reality. There was still a lot of hostility. There was still a lot of, I know what you really like. <laughs> yeah, you say you've changed and you're getting good grades, but you're the same. And I remember some teachers eventually in time kind of embracing that change and encouraging that, and others always being suspicious that at any moment I'm going to revert to whoever I was before that. So when God forgives us, these, these two aspects come together. God does remove our guilt, and so there's a legal forgiveness, there's a legal change where God says, now I consider you to be righteous because of Christ's sacrifice. When we accept Christ by faith, His righteousness becomes our righteousness. So the transcript of His grades becomes our transcript. And so when the administration looks at you, it says, oh, it's a good student. It's a righteous person because of Christ. But there's also a relational change that happens when God says, I will remember your sins no more. Now, God doesn't forget. This is not God saying, I will not know that you are a sinner anymore. But this is God saying, I will not bring it up again. I will not see you any longer as someone who has sinned against me. Listen to how Bridges uh, describes it. He says, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you are both justified, a legal act, and reconciled, a relational act. You are no longer condemned by God, in addition, you are no longer estranged from God. God is no longer against you. He is now for you. Both of these wonderful changes occurred because of God's grace and despite our sin and guilt. What the new covenant promised to us is that not only that God gives us a new heart that will love him, not only that he will be our God in a personal relationship with him, but also that he will forgive us completely legally, we are righteous before him because of Christ. And relationally, he will not ever bring up our sins anymore. I'm going to end with four quick points of application. If the new covenant promises are true, if Jesus is real, how would it, how should it affect my life today? What should we do in response to God's grace in Christ? Because all this whole covenant is about grace. How should we respond to God's grace in Christ today? Four suggestions for you. Number one, praise Him. Praise Him. This is what, what Kevin did during prayer. If Jesus is better, if He really did all of this, praise Him. Praise Him. 
Thank Him. Express your adoration. Express your gratitude. Sing to Him. Write poems to Him. Talk to Him. Praise Him. The great Puritan Thomas Watson says, Admire and adore God's free grace in calling you. That God should pass over so many, that He should pass by the wise and noble, and that the lot of free grace should fall upon you. That He should take you out of a state of vassalage from grinding the devil's mill and should set you above the princes of the earth and call you to inherit the throne of glory. Fall upon your knees. Break forth into a thankful triumph of praise. Let your hearts be ten stringed instruments to sound forth the memorial of God's mercy. None so deep in debt to free grace as you, and none should be so high mounted upon the pinnacle of thanksgiving. Say as the sweet singer, I will extol thee, my God, O King. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever. Those who are patterns of mercy should be trumpets of praise. Those who are patterns of mercy should be trumpets of praise. If the new covenant is real, guys, what can we do but praise him? But live in perpetual thanksgiving and praise that he did that for us. That he came and he said, I'm going to forgive you not just legally but relationally. I will never remember your sins. That I will give you a new heart that will now want to know me. And that I will be your God for you, with you, always for you, always with you. Praise him. Number two, pursue him. So many of us are satisfied with the fact that our sins are forgiven. And that is a great, great blessing and a great work of God that our sins are forgiven. But the point of the new covenant is not only to remove guilt, but it is also, and I would say primarily, to establish a new relationship with God. Sin is an obstacle. It's a barrier to our relationship. So God removes it. But in removing that barrier, he doesn't tell you, okay, that's great, you're forgiven now. And we say, that's, this is great, we're forgiven. God says, you're forgiven, so now you can know me. The obstacle is removed, so now you can pursue me. If God gave you a new heart that is now capable of loving him, you didn't have a heart that was capable of loving him before, why would you not love him? If God gave you now a mind that is capable of knowing him, and you didn't have a mind like that before, why would you not know him? If now in the new covenant God says, you can have a relationship with me, by my grace I am welcoming you into this new interaction with me and a new fellowship, new communion with me, why would we not pursue him? It's not only because you should or because you must. It's because you can. God says, now you can love me. Now you can know me. Now you can follow me. Now 
you can serve me. Pursue him. Number three, point to him. If the new covenant is real, if God's grace has this kind of transformative power, why should we not tell others about it? Who are you pointing to Jesus? Who is it in your life, in your neighborhood, at your school, at your job, that you are not pointing to Jesus? Because if this is true, and we have these kinds of blessings by grace, why will we not share that with other people? If you love this, if you think it's a blessing, if you think forgiveness of sins is real, if you think a new heart is real, if you think a new relationship with God is real, there are so many other people around you that need that. Point them to him. And finally, plead with him. Plead with him. We are to praise him, to pursue him, to point to him, and finally to plead with him. God has done an incredible thing in bringing you and me into the new covenant. He is able to do it with other people. So as we point other people to him, we don't just tell them, hey, here's Jesus. If you want him, take him. It's like quinoa. Here's quinoa. It's good for you. Just If you want it, take it. That's not the right way of witnessing. The right way of witnessing is, here is Jesus, And at the same time, I am pleading with God that he would open your heart to accept this Jesus. That he would give you a new heart that would love him. That he would establish a new relationship between you and Jesus. Prayer has to be part of our evangelism. We can't divorce the two. If it's all of God, and we're talking about the new covenant, and what did you do exactly to be part of the new covenant? At best, we can say, I've accepted it. At best. Even that is happening because you have a new heart that is capable of that now. If it's all of God, if it's all of grace, that means he can do it with anybody at any time. Because that is the only actor here, is God. And if he changed me, and I remember what I was like before God changed me. If he changed me, of course he can change anybody. So many stories here of people being changed by God's grace. But behind that, behind the scenes of every change, there were God's people praying and pleading on your behalf for God to enter into your life and change you. You know, we have this little jar, and we put stones in them. It's our way of reminding our church that we need to pray for people who are without Christ. And we've committed to do that. And I hope you are following through on that commitment that you're actually praying for the people that you have identified by those rocks. I hope that you're pleading with God that God would change them. Lord, you did it with us. Do it again. Do it with this person. Do it for them. Communion is a reminder of this new covenant. It's an expression. I gave you these four points of application. Communion is an expression of that. As you come, praise him. As you come to the table, pursue him. This is a step in a relationship where you're saying, I want to be with you. I want more of you. I want more of your grace. Point others to him. As we do communion, there's always someone in the church who is not a believer. And by the way, we want you to be here. 
We want to have all kinds of people come and hear about Jesus. And communion is an expression of that. If you're not a believer, what you see at the table is a broken body of Christ that's broken for you and a spilled blood of Christ that's spilled for you to establish a new covenant with you. It's a picture of the new covenant. It's a picture of the gospel. So if you're not a believer, I'm pointing you to Jesus now. Don't come to the communion table. Don't, don't come because everybody is coming. But go to Jesus who is signified by this table. Go to him and accept him and, and plead with him to give you a new heart and plead with him to be your God and your Lord today. And finally, as we come to the table, we, we do plead and we do pray. And I hope that you think of other people in your life that need this experience of Jesus, even as you are taking his body and his blood.